Welcome to Leading from Behind, the podcast series about the practice of solution-focused therapy, produced by the Halifax Brief Therapy Center. I'm Barry McClatchy, and this is episode number three, a general description of the key elements and skills used in solution-focused therapy. Now, in this third episode of the podcast, I'll be providing a broad description of the key elements and skills that characterize solution-focused practice. I'm also going to talk about the therapist's unique position in creating solution-focused conversations. In upcoming episodes, we'll be looking at all of this in more detail as we closely examine what takes place in first and follow-up sessions. So our best hope in this episode is simply to provide an overall view of what makes solution-focused therapy unique. Now, in closing this episode, I'll once again identify some resources that might be of interest to new practitioners. In this particular show, I'll identify the first of many books that are available about the approach. Now, just as a reminder, new episodes of Leading from Behind are available on the 15th and 30th of each month. You can find the show notes for each episode, which include any web links mentioned on the program, at the Halifax Brief Therapy Center website at hbtc.ca. Also, you can now subscribe to the podcast through iTunes. Simply follow the link on the podcast page of our website to locate the show on the iTunes store. It's listed in the training subcategory of the education section. Subscription, of course, is free, and you'll be able to download the podcast to your mobile device. So, once again, welcome to Leading from Behind. We hope you'll find this episode useful. A very simple description of solution-focused therapy might include the following three points. First and foremost, solution-focused therapy is concerned with what's important to the client and what the client wants, not only from the therapeutic encounter, but how he or she might want their life to be different. Secondly, the approach is concerned with eliciting, amplifying, and reinforcing small changes as a means of inviting continued progress. Third, and as noted in Episode 2, Considerable attention is also given to the notion of exceptions, times when the problem doesn't occur and something more useful might be happening instead. In this way, inviting clients to do more of what works is a central aspect of the approach. Now, the therapist's skill and position in solution-focused practice are quite unique in comparison to other approaches. While solution-focused therapists are interested in learning about people's problems, they do so only to the extent of understanding how such problems show up in people's lives, and that the client feels heard, understood, and acknowledged. From there, however, there's a more rapid movement toward conversation that focuses on the client's preferred future, a time when the problem is no longer present and something different is happening instead. Now, the use and understanding of language is an important part of solution-focused therapy. Efforts are made by the therapist to focus solely on the client's language and its unique meaning. Skill is also used to engage in conversations that identify clear behavioral descriptions of what clients want and what's important to them. Curiosity and the adoption of a not-knowing position are key skills used by the solution-focused therapist. 
Now, in contrast to problem-focused approaches, solution-focused practitioners engage in a collaborative relationship with their clients. Clients bring expertise and knowledge about their own unique lives, while the solution-focused therapist brings expertise in asking useful questions that enable clients to effectively hear the sound of their own voices. In this way, solution-focused therapists lead from behind, as opposed to the conventional leadership role used in problem-focused approaches. Now, at this point, let's take a look at some of the unique elements of solution-focused practice. Again, keep in mind that we'll provide more detail and lots of examples of each as we look at the approach in first and follow-up sessions. So some of these elements are as follows. The use of coping questions to highlight client efforts to manage in the face of problems. Indirect compliments that highlight client strengths, skills, and resilience. The examination of pre-session change based on the notion that changes may already be occurring between the time of booking and attending an appointment. Preferred future questions, such as the miracle question or questions that uncover the client's best hopes. During this particular element of solution-focused practice, questions are asked that allow for the deconstruction of language to uncover clear behavioral descriptions of what clients want for themselves. The use of exception-finding questions that can highlight unique solutions already located in the client's life, or times when even small parts of the preferred future already occur. The use of scaling questions, which are used to highlight how clients have managed, where they see themselves in relation to their preferred future, and as a way of understanding their ideas about small but meaningful change. The use of a break, situated near the end of the session, where the solution-focused therapist takes some time to think about the content of the conversation with the client. The therapist then returns to the session to provide direct compliments, validation of the client's situation, and statements of what stands out as being important to the client. Solution-focused therapists may also suggest between-session tasks to their clients, usually framed as experiments rather than homework. This might involve a noticing task, such as noticing times when things are better or when the client's unique ideas about solutions already occur. In some cases, clients might also be invited to consider specific efforts to engage in actions or behaviors that are part of the client's preferred future. So, these are some of the key elements of solution-focused therapy. Now, as we begin in upcoming episodes to look more closely at these elements, there's a few other points that are worth mentioning. First, the practice of solution-focused therapy does not mean that the therapist explicitly focuses on creating solutions for their clients. Instead, the client's own unique solutions are embedded in the answers to the questions asked by the solution-focused therapist. Clients are then viewed as having expertise in deciding what they might begin to do differently as a result of the conversation. Secondly, a client's unique solutions are not necessarily regarded as goals. In fact, in solution-focused practice, we rarely make any reference at all to this notion of goals. Instead, we hearken back to one of the key assumptions of the approach. Clients are the best experts on their own lives and will inevitably make their own decisions about whatever movement they make toward their preferred future. Third, While solution-focused therapy is viewed as a strength-based approach, 
Once again, it doesn't take this position in an explicit way. Instead, the uncovering of client strengths, skills, and resilience is again most often embedded in the questions posed by the therapist. Finally, it's also important to note that its practice may seem simplistic and possibly even formulaic to those who are used to the complexities of problem-focused approaches. Now, it's true that the core elements of solution-focused therapy are indeed simple, but as Insu Kimberg once observed, people often confuse simple with easy. Working in this simple, elegant manner takes effort and practice. Also, solution-focused therapy is hardly formulaic. In fact, one of its most challenging elements is learning what to ask clients and when to ask it. So in concluding this segment of the podcast, we should also note that solution-focused therapy is an approach that can be used regardless of a person's presenting problems. It's very common for newcomers to the approach to ask if it can be used to help someone with problems like eating disorders or post-traumatic stress. And of course, the answer is always the same. If someone is able to engage in a therapeutic conversation, then solution-focused therapy can certainly be a helpful approach. On our resource segment today, I'm going to identify several books that might be of interest to new solution-focused practitioners. Now, there's a good number of books available these days regarding the approach, and we certainly hope to mention all of them over time, so the ones mentioned today are simply a starting point. Again, to view the web links for each book mentioned, please see the show notes for this episode or visit the Leading From Behind podcast page at our website at hbtc.ca. Now, first and foremost, there is Interviewing for Solutions by Insu Kimberg and Peter DeYoung. This book is now in its fourth edition and is certainly an excellent primer for anyone new to the approach. The second book of note is a very recent one. Solution-Focused Therapy, 100 Key Points and Techniques, was written by Harvey Ratner, Evan George, and Chris Iveson. They're from Brief, a solution-focused clinic and training institute in London, England, which we mentioned in Episode 2. They've produced an excellent book that's both comprehensive and concise that we think can be useful for both newcomers and experienced practitioners. We would also encourage people who are new to the approach to consider anything written by Steve DeShazer. This would include Keys to Solution in Brief Therapy, published in 1984, Clues, Investigating Solutions in Brief Therapy, published in 1988, and Words Were Originally Magic, published in 1994. All are available at sfbta.org. These books offer DeShazer's clear, eloquent thoughts about the evolution of the ideas that led to the development of solution-focused therapy. Finally, we also want to highlight a book that speaks to the utility of solution-focused practice in an environment that has been heavily dominated by the medical model. Solution-Focused Brief Practice with Long-Term Clients in Mental Health Services was written by Joel Simon and Therana Nelson. This book offers examples of how solution-focused conversations can be useful in working with clients who may have serious psychiatric diagnoses or have languished in mental health care facing the same unhelpful approach over and over again. So we've reached the end of this episode, and I'd like to thank you again for joining us. 
In Episode 4, we'll begin our in-depth look at first sessions in solution-focused therapy. Once again, you can access the show notes and web links from this episode at the Halifax Brief Therapy Center's website at hbtc.ca. As mentioned earlier, you can also follow the link to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes. If you would like to give us some feedback about the podcast, or if you would like us to mention an organization, book, or upcoming training opportunity relating to solution-focused practice, you can send us an email to feedback at hbtc.ca, or leave a comment on the podcast page at our website at hbtc.ca. In closing, our thanks once again to Dano at danosongs.com, provider of royalty-free music used under Creative Commons license. The music used in this episode is entitled Seven Skies. So you've been listening to Leading From Behind, episode number three. I'm Barry McClatchy from the Halifax Brief Therapy Center. I hope you'll join us again.